The following message is from Bear Creek Church. More information about BCC is available at bearcreekchurch.org. Thank you, Father, for this time of worship and the ways in which our hearts and minds are brought back into line with you and your will. Cause us to be devoted to your word, to the gift of prayer, our fellowship as brothers and sisters in Christ. Please now bless the reading and preaching of your word, we pray in Jesus' name. You may be seated. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 25. Acts 8, 5 through 25. If you remember the the great uh, persecution that ensued, after Stephen's martyrdom, and people, uh, the Christians were scattered from Jerusalem, planted in regions of Samaria, and Philip specifically is who we read about this morning. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip, When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours. And pray to the Lord that if possible the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel 
to many villages of, some, of the Samaritans. This is God's word. Well, by now you should know something about me, that I like questions, right? There are two questions that people have wrestled over in our text. And I'm sure I'll leave you thinking probably of some more, so please feel free to ask. Talk to me after the sermon. Write to me. I love questions. And I love questions for a few reasons, but I also, I keep thinking of the reality that, that you hear of so many people who grow up in the church and they end up leaving the faith. Why? Because they had questions that didn't get answered. Don't want that to be true here. We love, we love questions. Please know that we want to hear from you. So don't be... Don't be afraid of even doubts. Don't be afraid to ask. Because God's word is perfect. And we're confident that there are answers to be found in it. So here in, in our text, there are a couple of questions that people have when, when they read this. They might think, they might say, you know, am I missing something? I've repented. And I believe in Jesus. But I haven't experienced anything like this. Is there another work of the Spirit? And then another question is, how can Simon, how can a person who believes and is even baptized fall away? And I think it's, it's ironic that the theme of Acts and what we see in this particular passage is actually about unity. And yet this question about a, a second work of the Spirit, what does it tend to do today? It creates division. As if there are just regular Christians and then some kind of super Christian. Unity is the overarching theme of the gospel and God's church. Unity is the point of this evangelistic mission that Philip goes on and, and the work of the Spirit. The goal is not to, it's, it's not to have this separate Samaritan denomination, but to communicate that they are equals. They are one in Christ along with the Jewish believers. And remember... Samaritans, there's, there's ten centuries of division to overcome here. There's great animosity. So much so that they, they have a separate temple to worship in. They don't agree on the writings of scripture. They don't, con, they're, they're considered by the Jews as heretics, traitors, half-breeds, even worse than Gentiles. So unity is a big deal here. And through faith in Jesus, through the gospel proclamation, God is the one, God is the one at work here, breaking down, dividing walls of hostility and saying that these people are his adopted children just as much as, as any believer is. So to answer this first question, we need to keep in mind 
the significance, we're going to keep going back to Acts 1.8, that before his ascension, Jesus told his disciples what he was going to do through them. His plan of salvation is this. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem and in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Salvation is for all peoples. It's for the Jewish world, the Samaritan world, and the rest of the world, the Gentiles. And in light of this this three-stage witness, it's really helpful to see something else going on in Acts. That there is this work of the Spirit, a Pentecost-like event that happens for each of these three people groups. First, the actual day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, beginning with the Jews. And then another event, this event in chapter 8, is like a Pentecost for Samaritans. And eventually a third experience for the Gentiles. And the point of these Pentecostal-like events is not to separate. It's not to separate, but to connect each group as the same Holy Spirit is given by the hands of the apostles. In chapter 2, remember that this is a gathering of of Jews into Jerusalem, both Hebraic Jews and Diaspora Jews or Hellenistic Jews. Jews that were scattered, who settled in various regions, taking on the customs and languages there. And so this miracle of Pentecost, the the speaking of tongues, involved the Jerusalem disciples speaking the mighty works of God in these various languages that these people took on. What once separated them is now brought together. It's now brought together through this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The disciples received power to be witnesses to both Hebrew and Hellenistic Jews. And so Jesus is building his church. He's uniting these categories of Jews who were once divided. Now, in chapter 8, we see a second stage of Jesus' witness. As a result of Stephen's martyrdom, they experience a greater, more severe persecution. And the disciples are scattered. Philip goes and plants the gospel in Samaria. And after they believe, God does another Pentecost-like event for the sake, for the sake of unity. And then later on in chapters 11 and 19, we see Peter and then Paul having similar type of Pentecost or works of the Spirit specifically for Gentiles. So in, in each witness, there are two separate workings of the Spirit. First in bringing about faith, and then the Holy Spirit falls on them through the, through the ministry of the Apostles. And that's key, through the ministry of the apostles. And this act of the Spirit, it's very much like what happened on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2. And the purpose of each, again, it's unity. Here's Peter's conclusion in chapter 11 in this Pentecost-like event. 
to the Gentiles. He says, if then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, speaking of Pentecost, speaking of chapter 2, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. They're one with us. Look at, look at the Spirit. It's the same as what happened with us. Oneness. They're brothers and sisters. If the Holy Spirit landed on them like he landed on us, Peter says, then who am I to stand in God's way? If God wants to call both of us, if he wants to call Gentiles into this one family. And then in chapter 19, the same thing happens through Paul. Both apostles. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, this Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There's about 12 men in all. How did the Holy Spirit come upon them? They believed, and by the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit came. The pattern we see, we need to see, is that this this initial, this is an initial building of Christ's church. It's a unique period of apostolic ministry. And it has to do with unity. All peoples are tied to the one apostolic witness. First the gathering of divided Jews, then a unity involving Samaritans, and finally to the ends of the earth to non-Jews to the Gentiles. Concerning the the Samaritans in chapter 8, Dr. Derek Thomas writes this, God providentially dispatched the apostles Peter and John to Samaria in order to pour out this necessary fullness of the Spirit upon the Samaritan Christians. This reality demonstrated to the Jewish apostles especially that faith was no longer tied to Jerusalem. While it came through the Jews, this freshly wrought faith founded upon the person and work of Jesus was now an unbounded and global community of faith. Not limited by temporal distinctions like geography or culture. The significance of Jerusalem as the zip code where God's purposes were localized had now been abrogated. There was no more Jew and Gentile. The dividing wall between them had been destroyed in Christ. This is the consistent 
This is the consistent teaching of our New Testament. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All of these categories exist in the body of Christ. Think of it in first century. Slaves and slave owners are brothers and sisters in the same body. All the horrible thoughts toward women are overcome in Christianity and they are equal. There is no male or female. We're one. All of these categories exist in the body of Christ and yet we are to love one another as equals because at the heart of the gospel is an understanding that none of us earn or deserve God's salvation. It's grace. Unmerited favor. Mercy that is based on God. And not any of our various distinctions and differences. Christ is the Savior of all who repent and look to Him in faith. So the history we see in the book of Acts is a is a working out of Jesus' words in chapter 1 and verse 8. And the reason we see this two-stage work of the Holy Spirit is to announce that each of these people groups are one. They are connected by the same apostolic witness. What do we see in chapter 8? Philip goes to Samaria, proclaims Christ. In verse 12, we see that they believe Philip. They believe the good news about the kingdom of God and the name or authority of Jesus Christ. And both men and women were baptized. Now, in response to this successful evangelism, beginning at verse 14, we're told that the apostles at Jerusalem sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. First, under Philip's ministry, by the work of the Spirit, they believe. Repentance and faith is a gift of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy, it's not as if the Holy Spirit is, is completely absent. The only way anyone comes to faith is by the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit. So re, Their repentance and faith is a work of the Holy Spirit, stage one here, through the ministry of Philip in preaching the gospel. Jesus, he taught this truth in John 3. He said that a a person can't even see, they can't know or believe in God's kingdom unless they're first born of the Spirit. So the Spirit's work is not just brand new at Pentecost. It's been going on for all of history, all of biblical history, all of creation. So seeing and believing in Jesus, it's a result of the Spirit's work. But with these Samaritans, there's there's this, this other experience of the Holy Spirit that comes upon them when Peter and John show up. And in verse 17 we read, then they did what? They laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, some Christians read this, not seeing the unique purpose and apostolic witness, and think this is is something that should be normative for us today. 
That there's another work of holiness that, that follows that follows your conversion. A baptism of the Spirit or a fullness of the Spirit that's distinct or different from the Spirit's work in converting you and bringing you to faith. And then some will also insist that this second blessing of the Spirit is, is confirmed by speaking in tongues. They miss the context. They miss the purpose of these things. So back to our question, should you expect another work of the Spirit? For those who think this is a normative experience for today, it seems hard to reconcile this with the truth that all believers are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We're filled. And there's a huge segment of the church that doesn't experience this second work of the Spirit. Also, what was intended to break down walls of division if ongoing and normative for today, it accomplishes the very opposite. Today, these distinctions create categories of spirit-filled Christians and just your regular run-of-the-mill Christians, first class and second class. So obviously, we can't deny, we can't deny the text. We can't deny that the Samaritans experienced conversion and then later on the giving of the Spirit, the question is, is this normative? Is this the experience all Christians should expect in all times? Those who believe it is for today, will they'll bring up something like the fact that the apostles, well, what about the apostles? They believed, they were converted during Jesus' earthly ministry, and then and then later on, Acts 2, Pentecost, they experienced the baptism of the Spirit. Isn't that an example? But again, our question is, is this normative for all time? Is this the experience all Christians should expect? And an understanding of context usually helps out. Pointing to the apostles is a, is a really bad example to give because what was their context? They lived under the old covenant and into the new. They were right in between. They experienced both. So what else would they experience? It, it couldn't happen any other way for them because Pentecost was the inauguration of the new covenant, the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. And Jesus didn't pour out the Spirit in this way until he had ascended. So the apostles lived in a unique time as they were, they were regenerated by the Spirit. They were brought to faith just like every Old Testament saint was. But then prophecy was fulfilled at Pentecost. And a new era began, rightly understanding this unique first century context helps us to see that, that what's described in Acts 8 was very purposeful for that time and not normative for ours. Christ is building his church and the first Pentecost communicated to both Hebrew and Hellenistic Jews, you're one. The Spirit is given to each, and the impartation of the Spirit comes through Christ's appointed apostles. And so now, as Philip 
a Hellenistic believer, goes to enemy territory of Samaria and is used of God to bring about their faith, what unites these former enemies is the same apostolic ministry that imparts the same evidence communicating that they're one. They share the same spirit. Keep going back to Acts 1.8. The plan of salvation for Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. Those are not the same issues that we deal with today. This is the, the establishment of the church. But keep going back to Acts 1.8. And then see how each of these initial witnesses had an outpouring of the Spirit that's connected to the ministry of the apostles. That's our context. But there's more. Verse 16 gives us another connection to these three events. The verb translated as fallen on. The Samaritans were lacking this fallen on experience of the Holy Spirit. And the Greek verb is it's much more intense. It's a much more intense form of a more common verb that means to fall. A better translation of, of the verb that Luke uses here is fall all over. Here's a couple of examples. Think of the, the story of the prodigal son. And as he returns, his father sees his son in the distance. And, and we love this story. He, he runs to him. And this same verb Luke uses is translated as he threw his arms around him. It's the same word for when the weeping elders of Ephesus embrace Paul. In each case, this verb expresses an abundance of emotion in a physical expression. It's, a, it's an over-the-top reaction, falling all over. And these same Samaritan believers had received the regenerating work of the Spirit and maybe even some supernatural gifts. But what they hadn't received, what, what the apostles received at Pentecost was this all-embracing falling all over of the Spirit. Now here's a connection. This same verb is used in Acts 11 in a Pentecost-like experience at the home of the Gentile Cornelius. And Peter makes a comparison, saying that this falling all over of the Holy Spirit was, was just as on us at the beginning. It's the same as Acts 2. Just like what happened to us at Pentecost. The same action of the Holy Spirit is applied to each of the three Pentecost-like experiences. For the Jews, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles. One author comments that the critical factor in each case was not so much a particular gift of the Spirit, but the overwhelming, evident, awesome self-disclosure of the living God. In its way, this was a... This was... Get this. In its way, this was as significant 
as the voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism and on the Mount of Transfiguration and bore the same essential message, then it was, this is my son. Now it's, these are my people. Think of the encouragement of that. Of this experience brought to the Samaritans. People once considered half-breeds, apostates, even non-people. We're now one. One in acceptance, dignity, and status with all of the other people of God. This is what the spirits falling all over communicated to them. Okay, but... In our text, let's not forget, there's, a, there's another character I haven't even talked about yet. This character of Simon, a main character uh, in our text. And a second question, the second question that people tend to have when they read this. How can a person who believes and is even baptized fall away from the faith? Mixed into this story is this character of Simon the Magician. And because earlier on, Philip is, he's casting out unclean spirits who cry out in loud voices. I think we can assume that Simon is not the kind of magician we see today who uses mirrors and sleight of hand. He's more like Pharaoh's magicians competing against Moses. We read that Simon amazed the people of Samaria with what we can assume is sorcery. And verse 10 says that they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that's called great. Following after a show, Luke tells us that the people paid attention to Simon, but in verse 6 we read that they paid attention to Philip. We read that He amazed the people with his magic. But then in verse 13, Simon is the one who becomes amazed at the signs and miracles that Philip performs. So much so that along with the Samaritans, even Simon himself is said to have believed and was baptized. And if we stop right there, we might think, hey, a former Satanist is converted by the power of God. He believed and he's even baptized like everyone else. But then Peter and John, they arrive and pray that the Samaritan believers would receive this falling all over Holy Spirit experience. They lay hands on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. And apparently Simon thinks, hey, now that's a power I could use. And since he offered them money, it seems he's thinking of this as an an investment for making money with his magic. And Peter rebukes him, saying, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money? You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Peter says, You have nothing to do with God. And we wonder, but it says he believed, and he was baptized, Did he have faith and then lose his salvation? What about the baptism? Would Philip baptize him if he didn't have a right profession of faith? Some answer this by saying, 
Simon, was, yes, he was converted, but not consecrated. That Peter's rebuke was about Simon's lack of sanctification and not his justification. This is about his lack of devotion and not salvation. And I think people who say this stretch to give this answer because they hold to a once saved, always saved doctrine and they don't have a right definition of believe or being saved. And so there's no category, there's no other way for them to think. But we need to remember that many people believed in Jesus. But then when he says some hard things to them, what do they do? We see them in the Gospels turning away, not walking with him. It says, it actually says they believe in him. They're, they're called disciples. They follow him. He says some hard things to them and they walk away. So it's not new in the Gospels. People believe a lot of true things about Jesus. I think reading through the Gospel of John, that's a, that's a theme throughout the Gospel of John. True belief and just belief. Belief doesn't mean salvation. So people believe a lot of true things about Jesus. They believe that he can bring a healing. He could amaze them with miracles. He had great wisdom in the things that he said. And he can give them a free meal. They believed all those things. Likewise, we can believe a lot about Jesus. But if he's not the eternal God incarnate, if he's just a means to a better life, if he's just your therapist, that's not a belief that actually saves. And it's not even... It's not even about having the right answers, is it? We can grow up in the church, we can know the truth, even make a right profession of faith before we're baptized. Apparently Simon did this with Philip. Knowing the right answers is not the same as saving faith. Having an emotional response is not salvation. Even doing great things in Jesus' name is no guarantee. Remember, Jesus said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? Pretty impressive stuff. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Oh, saving faith is not simply a right knowing of the facts. It's a gift of God, a transformed heart that repents of sin, trusts in Jesus, and obeys his word. Jesus went on to say, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat at that house but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Those who truly believe are doers of the word and not hearers only. 
their foundation is Christ. And if so, they will not fall away. Perseverance of the saints. God will keep his own. He will, Jesus won't lose any. Similar to once saved, always saved, but way better. So a believer, a true believer, keeps on believing. He endures to the very end. And the one who falls away only does so because he never truly believed. We read this in 1 John chapter 2. They went out from us. Why? They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So with this in mind, here are a few things that that we notice about Simon. First, there's no sign of repentance with him. In Peter's first few evangelistic sermons, he emphasizes the necessity of repentance. When people were cut to the heart, they asked, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Simon was a sorcerer involved with demonic activity. And there's no hint of him ever repenting of such evil. There's no evidence of confession of sin And now, after his blasphemous request, Peter says, Repent of this wickedness and pray that the Lord forgive you. And we're told nothing else about Simon in Scripture. But early early church fathers, if we go, go by that, they mention Simon. They mention him as the father of or associated with with the the heresy that the church battled all throughout when you read the epistles, the heresy of Gnosticism, this higher knowledge. And so that's the reputation that we have throughout church history, is that he continued in that way. And so the assumption is that he's lost. Second thing we see about Simon is his offer of money. And that it shows this ongoing pattern of sin. He offers a bribe with the hope of making more money. And he views the Holy Spirit as something similar to the spirits used in his satanic tricks. His request shows no conviction of sin. And a greedy, self-promoting, materialistic heart. Lastly... There's Peter's harsh response and shows that Peter sees right through him. Peter says, may your silver perish with you. More literally, he says, to hell with you and your money. And this isn't meant as profanity, but literally a divine curse that consigns him to destruction. And when Peter goes on to say, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God, he's saying, Simon never shared in the blessing of salvation. He's under a curse and not blessing. So don't be confused when famous Christian leaders walk away from the faith or are shown to be fake 
or begin to, to deconstruct their faith. Deconstructing your faith simply means that you never had faith in the first place. It can be confusing to us when, when it's someone that we admire, someone that we even learned from. But the only explanation for falling away is that they never were of us in the first place. It's not the knowledge that saves. It's not a baptism either, because Simon was baptized. So passages like this are, they're a warning to us. We need to examine our hearts on a regular basis. We need to discern if there's ongoing repentance, humility, evidence of a life that's fruitful and obedient to God's word. It's an interesting passage. More than questions, more than simply questions. One author sums it up by saying this. When this great awakening happened in Samaria lives, lives were transformed and turned upside down. A whole new way of life began. People began to talk in a new and different way, and they were full of enthusiasm about certain things that had come into their lives. They had a new perspective on life, family, job, money, and possessions. They themselves were new people caught up by a new strength, and they were united in Christian fellowship by a glorious power that affected everything they did and thought. It's revival. Too much of what we do and experience falls short of this. Just even think about how we approach a Sunday. What is our, our attitude? What are we focused on? Do we, do we think that our gathering together and this time together is, is actually God changing us? Calibrating our hearts to love him more. Yes, we go through motions, but these habits change us. Are we focused on this time of worship? Are we thinking about lunch and the Super Bowl? Great as those things are, has any Super Bowl ever changed your life? Great as they are, those things don't change your life. This does. Something truly great happens in Samaria. Yes, it was unique for their particular time, but still, it was a life-changing revival. A powerful manifestation of the Spirit. Something, something he's done in other times of revival. Throughout history. So, so in light of last week's message... Seemed to get a lot of your attention. I got more comments on that than anything. What, you speak about the evil of our time and you're like, oh, I watch the news too. Yes. In light of last week's message, in light of the evil of our time, are we praying for a revival? Are we just giving up? Not that we expect another Pentecost, but the same Spirit is in us. And He's able to do great things, great works through people, revival or not. Let's be praying for the Spirit's work in our lives. Let's pray together right now. Would you join me? 
Father, as the Apostle Paul prayed for fellow believers in Ephesus, so we pray. We pray that you, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in knowing you. Having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know the hope to which you have called us, that we may know the riches of your glorious inheritance to all the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward those who believe, according to the working of your great might. Holy Spirit, do a work in us, in our church, so that we might be a witness to Jesus in this nation and world. We pray in Jesus' name.